All right. Welcome, guys, to the JPS podcast. We have a very, very special guest today, Mr. Lyle McDonald. Welcome, Lyle. Thank you, Jake, for having me. Lyle is, without doubt, one of the most brilliant minds in the fitness industry. Some may call him a raging asshole, but they're just very sensitive little children. Fair enough. For anyone who does know Lyle, he is one of the most brilliant minds in the game and is a physiologist with a degree in kinesiology and is the author uh, of The Ultimate Diet 2.0, The Rapid Fat Loss Handbook and A Guide to Flexible Dieting. He's dedicated the better part of two decades to obsessively finding ways to apply (laughs) the scientific literature to sports nutrition, fat loss and muscle growth and is one of the founding fathers, I dare say, of evidence-based practice. So thank you very much for your time today, Lyle. Thank you. So I have three questions to kick off the podcast, Lyle. My first question is, today's Valentine's Day for us. Yeah. Will you be my Valentine? Absolutely. Um, Yes. You know, my my girlfriend might get jealous, but... You know, absolutely, you gotta take what you can get. Um, and let me let me warn your listeners, just for a little context, um, we were talking about beforehand. I managed to get my first major injury at 46 about 10 days ago. I actually fractured my ankle. I had surgery on Thursday, and I am on painkillers. So if I'm a little loopier than usual, uh, I, I tend to be a little goofy online as it is, but um, this stuff is kind of messed with me. So if I seem a little bit more <laughs> off kilter, this, this is why. Um, I don't really care for being on painkillers, but it's better than having my foot yelling at me. So, anyway, but yes, to answer your question, I would, I would love to be your Valentine. I'm, I'm honored that you would have it. Thank you, Lyle. The second question was, how the hell did you break your ankle inline skating? I know we spoke about this earlier, but explain to the listeners. Yeah. So, I've actually been inline skating since I started in 89 in college, like back when it really first started as a fad, all my friends who did gymnastics. I raced for many years. And we used to do early stunt stuff. We would ride downstairs and jump over things. Um, I raced inline skates in my 20s. I actually spent five years in Salt Lake City speed skating uh, on the ice, uh, ice speed skating. Came back to Austin. I raced for several years. Like I've been skating on and off for, for almost almost 15 to 20 years, and I kind of retired. Well, about two weeks ago, um, a friend of my girlfriend's wanted to go to like the local indoor rink. And it's just it's it's been there since the 70s. It's one of these old style roller skating rinks where they play goofy music and couple skate and kids skate. And I had been on skates in a while, but it took me a little while to to get my bearings, and it was fine. And I just went out to kind of goof off on my own, and somebody that was out of control bumped into my hip. He was going too fast. He ran into me. I got turned sideways. And indoor rinks have very sticky floors for the wheels. Yeah. And right. I mean, I don't know exactly what happened, but. My skate kind of stuck. I came over to, you know, I came over the ankle to the outside. Luckily, I've been doing this long enough. I rolled into a ball, so I didn't hit my head, didn't hit my wrist. Yeah. And just felt, I felt the ankle explode. Like, you can you yeah. can feel it inside, you hear it, and watched it swell up into a watermelon. Uh, the long and the short of it is I fractured the fibula, which is the small bone to the outside of the the ankle, I tore the ligament in between the fibula and the tibia, uh, it's called the interosseous ligament, and I ruptured the 
deltoid ligament, which is a small triangular ligament on the inside of the ankle, which is like this is all when you when you do the ankle this way, this is sort of the, the cluster of action. So ended up having to have surgery. So I did that Thursday. They put a plate in, they, they plated the fibula as an inter internal cast. They put a cross screw between the tibia and fibula to keep them close enough together. And supposedly the ligaments will kind of reattach. And, um, you know, they're going to scar over and I'm, I'm about, I've been on pain meds for about five days. I'll be on crutches and intermobilization boot for a solid three months, yeah. um, until I start weight bearing. And basically this sucks. Uh, it's, it's just, it's when you're used to being active and I've been active since high school, you know, uh, almost three decades now being very independent I've got two dogs. This is gonna. This has been a real challenge because I, I mean I can't walk them safely. So pottying them, being, you know, when you're on crutches, I can't carry a dish like I, to get from the kitchen to the, the the couch. Like it's really, and I drive a stick shift. So like this is the one time I wish I drove an automatic. Yeah. Um, I will be able to drive limited amounts, um, but it's just like it's a real change in my life and, and not a good one. Um, like it's. You know, athletes will get clinically depressed. I've already actually had elements. It's just like I'm yeah. used to being active. I can't. So, so dealing with this is not going to be fun. Um, luckily, uh, I do have a, you know, a very active Facebook group that will talk, probably will come up. We've got some really smart people there. And so really I've got uh, – actually there's a, a physio friend of mine who's in New Zealand named Tim Rowland. Yeah. Um, he's given me a lot of good information, uh, feedback on you know how to make sure this heals properly. Someone suggested that there's actually this leg crutch called the eye walk that it sort of attaches to the injured leg, and it's mm -hmm. like a peg leg, and yep. will allow me to, to kind of motor around and have the use of my hands because, like, I can't go to the grocery store because I can't carry groceries. Yeah. Like, it's just all these things that I really did take for granted. Um, what's interesting sure. is my girlfriend is actually a personal caregiver for disabled individuals, and... I mean, on the one hand, yeah, I can sit here and cry in my milk. But on the other hand, she, I mean, she's got a, a client who's been paralyzed from the neck down for 30 years who makes her living as a painter, you know. And I'm like, you know, this sucks, but I'll, I'll, I'll get over it and I'll heal. Yeah. But it, it yeah. really is sort of a, a, a very – but anyway, so just one of those freak accidents. This is why I don't leave the house any more than I can. And I'm sort of, <laughs> you know, well, we'll, we'll do that even less so now. Um, I yeah. think I learned my lesson, so. Um, well, it'll, it's good. It'll it'll get it's given me an opportunity to really get into some of the literature, and you know I'm going to learn a lot about uh, nutrition and bone healing because you know this yep. is this I mean, this is an opportunity to and make sure that this is where my background in all of this will give me an advantage. I want to make sure I heal properly and as quickly as as I can. So anyway, yeah, yeah, that's it, Lyle. You you do have to take the silver lining with these things, and we wish you a speedy recovery. Thanks, and, sir. Considering now that you have so much spare time, this is my third question. When the hell can we expect the release of the female fat loss? Book? Yeah, that's a good, and it, it's, actually, it's actually sort of funny, right? So for the listeners, you know, about, it's actually been almost two years. Um, I would started another book and ended up spinning off this project. And it's one I've really been uh, delaying because I knew it was going to be very complicated. And this was looking at, at very women specific issues. You know, we, we typically treat women just like very much like little men. And, and, and more and more we realize that's not the case. The physiology is different. Mm -hmm. The, the mm -hmm. principles are the same, make no mistake, but there are distinct differences with the menstrual cycle and hormones. So what I originally thought would be a quick project has turned into 
a two-year nightmare. Like, it, and, and I don't mean that as being, it's not meant to be negative towards women or critical. It's just this is such a complex topic because women are complicated in a way that men just aren't. Um, men are very simple and crude pretty much from top to bottom. Like it really is true in the way our systems work and women are subtle, complicated and, and nuanced in a way that we aren't. And my writing has kind of come and gone in spurts. Um, I'm actually lucky enough. Eric Helms, who you may, if you haven't had him on the, the pot, you certainly could. He's, he's, he's brilliant. He's excellent. He's given me a lot of feedback, contributed a couple sections on this book. He deals with a lot of female competitors or, or works with them rather deals with is the wrong word in any event. I think there is the possibility that now that I'm, I'm kind of stuck, I can't wander around the house so much or, or do as many things. I actually think this will facilitate getting the book done. Although I have to wait for the painkillers to clear because those would be some really creative <laughs> chapters. Um, definitely like I have, my head's not in the game yet, yeah. but I think once I get through just this acute, acute yeah. phase and get back to some normal functioning, I actually think it, and I'm actually very close to being done even before yeah. this happened. Yeah. Because um, I had to do a ton of rewriting, a ton of re-editing, which was almost harder. It's almost harder to rewrite mm -hmm. than to write originally. But I've, I've only got like, I think, two chapters left to finish editing, and then it's actually in the can. I mean, you know, um, it actually got so extensive I had to break it up. The nutrition yeah. and fat loss is volume one, and I'm actually wow. going to have to cover training because women are just that complex. And, and part of it is I, I went from writing what I thought was going to be kind of a casual look at this. Once my brain gets going, this has become, you know, a research-based tome. I have something yeah. like 30 pages of just references. Um, wow. The amount of research that's really developing on male and female differences is enormous mm -hmm. and getting, thankfully getting larger by the day. For years, yeah. women were really ignored in the research realm and that's really changing. So hopefully next, I would, you know, I would love to say the next two or three months, but you know, my first book, I said that for a year. But I don't think it, I, I really, it is actually very close. So. Awesome. Awesome. And that's what I wanted to talk to you today about mm -hmm. was female fat loss and then yes. the nuances of body composition uh, for competitors and those looking to take their physique sure. to the next level. So in regards to female fat loss, as you mentioned, the principles are the same. You know, we know that energy balance drives, uh, you know, weight management and so forth. But females do... Absolutely typically have a harder time losing body fat when compared to males. Um, and yes. besides testosterone and lean, lean body mass being the obvious differences, what are the other physiological and endocrinological, endocrinological changes, uh, sorry, differences between men and women? Oh. Well, you know, the, the big one, clearly testosterone is a primary one. And on average, women have, you know, one-tenth to one-thirtieth the testosterone of men. It's, it's in that range. Some women do have slightly higher than other women, a condition called polycystic ovary syndrome. They're finding also a group of women that's like 20 to 30 percent above normal. And in women especially, even slight changes have profound benefits. Like if you're a, a – if you coach power lifters or Olympic lifters or strength power athletes, if you ever get the opportunity to train a woman with polycystic ovary syndrome, they're phenomenal. Like they, they adapt much more like men. They train much more like men. Physiologically speaking, you often see a difference in – uh, their physique may be different. They may have a more linear bodies, so they're not quite as wide in the hips. They're physically more, they're built more for those kind of movements. Mm -hmm. They also tend to be psychologically mm -hmm. more built for that. They tend to be 
like, and I'm going to use some terms like, you know, masculine and feminine, and I'm not using those as, it's not meant to be derogatory, it's not meant to be constraining, it's just because we know what those terms mean. There's frequently, with the PCOS woman, there's almost, they, they frequently, it's more tomboyish, they're the ones that, they'll get in your face, they're the ones that you'll be like, I bet you can't lift that, and they'll be like, <laughs> you want to bet? Like, the, you can push them more like men then you can, you know, you typically might not see that in a woman who wants to go into bikini competition. And again, I'm not, it's not meant to be critical, just that it is. And getting off topic, I think this is even a big thing that a lot of trainers don't realize, right? As a male trainer, you've probably trained both men and women. Unless they're much older, have you ever, ever found a male trainee, ever, that didn't want to go as heavy as possible, that didn't want to be big and strong? No, you haven't. They don't exist, right? They just don't. <laughs> or if they do, there's such, t you know, you get to guys who are just like, I swear. but they're rare. Guys always want to go heavy. There is, if nothing else, there is more variability among women than I think you will ever see among men in the weight room. Mm. You do have women, absolutely, that want to be strong, that want to push heavy weights, that want to squat for fives, that are built for it. But by the same token, you have a lot of women that aren't. They, they, if they've got wider hips, if they've got knee, they may lack the upper body strength, and that's a lean body mass thing. Women tend to have more muscle distributed in their legs than in their upper body. Even if they want to squat heavy, they, not be, they, they frequently can't effectively shoulder what their legs can move. Yeah. Deadlifting, Olympic lifting, what their legs can pull, their upper body, their upper back physically can't hold because of the way they muscle. And if they've got wider hips, their knees break in. Not to mention that they may just not want to. And again, this isn't meant to be critical. We know there's different ways to reach a goal. But I think what a lot of male trainees forget, and even there's a, a group of very vocal women online that do love heavy lifting, that love heavy squatting, that love, you know, that sort of thing. And more power to them. Mm. I see them tending to project a little bit. And they're just like, all women should do fives in the squat. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but if you're, Again, this is not meant to be negative. If you're a girly girl, you don't have any drive to do that. You don't. And you and I'm not again, you don't necessarily have to. If you want to do sets of twelve to failure, that's fantastic. You want to do glute bridges, whatever. This is an issue that I think does tend to be forgotten. But anyway, so that's the testosterone aspect. Um, the lean body mass issue, there's differences in body composition. And on average, women have roughly 10% more body fat and roughly 10% less lean body mass than men. Now, right. people will hear that and go, but but an elite female athlete, right, an elite female, well-trained female athlete may very well have more, maybe 15% body fat, maybe leaner than the average man. Yeah. I'm, we're, we're comparing apples to apples, right? If you take a group of men and women out of the general population, that'll hold 10% less lean body mass in women. If you take athletes uh, across almost all sports, female athletes, their performance is about 10% less than men, almost without exception. It's, there's a little bit of, of wobble in that. There's a couple sports where women do better that are in ultra-endurance stuff. But by and large, it's about 10 So if you're looking at elite women, it's about 10%. If you're looking at gen pop women, it's about 10%. And that actually explains a lot of the differences between women and men, right? If you put a woman's muscle and a man's muscle under a microscope, they're basically identical. There's slight differences. They generate the same force per muscle. Women just have less of it. So women's force production, their, their absolute strength will be lower, but if you divide it by lean body mass, 
it's pretty damn close. Metabolic rate's the same way, right? We know that women have a lower metabolic rate. Well, resting metabolic rate correlates with lean body mass. And the grand majority of the difference is explained by lean body mass. Now, not all of it. There are still major hormonal differences, but the grand, you tend to see it go away. So women's power outputs during sprinting, their speeds, about 10% lower. Normalized for lean body mass, it tends to cancel out. But that doesn't change the fact that at the elite level, an elite woman will still have less, you know, it's, there's this idea that women will outperform or even equal men at the same level of performance doesn't ever seem to hold true outside of uh, running events greater than 50, 52 kilometers. Women uh, actually outperform men because they're built for that low intensity endurance and uh, cold water swimming. That's the other one. Like when, when uh, uh, swimming like the, the, uh, the channel, yeah. women are better at that because they've got better endurance. They use more fat for fuel. And since they carry more body fat, they float better and they don't freeze to death. Um, but outside of those two domains. So anyway, so but the other, the really the big one is the menstrual cycle, right? And this is the typically monthly cycle variations in estrogen and progesterone. And those are the two primary female hormones. Now men make some, men have a little bit of estrogen, men have a little bit of progesterone, just the same way women have a little bit of testosterone. But women not only have higher levels, they vary throughout the month. During the first half of the cycle, typically called the follicular phase, and this ranges from the first day of menstruation to till, till ovulation. That's the first roughly two weeks. Estrogen starts low, sweeps high. That's when women tend to be more insulin sensitive. Their hunger tends to be more better controlled. They use more carbs for fuel. They burn less fat for fuel. Um, mood is frequently better. Um, once they ovulate, estrogen drops and progesterone starts to come up to about halfway point, estrogen comes up too. This is the part of the cycle where they tend to be a little bit insulin resistant. They use less carbohydrates for fuel. They use more fat for fuel. Their, met their metabolic rate is higher, but this is when cravings and hunger go up. And that's under the influence of progesterone, right? So this is when women get their get the typical cravings. And this is, of course, worse in the last week of the cycle called the late luteal phase, that's if, if premenstrual syndrome or, I know there's different terms for different parts of the world, um, premenstrual tension, however, whatever you want to call it, that's typically when that will occur. And that's when you may see mood swings, cravings, uh, emotional lability is the polite way of putting it. Um, and this is, high, but again, this is enormously variable, right? Some women, PMS week, they will feel nothing. Others, will be suicidal and confined to bed, right? Premenstrual, <laughs> it's called premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Yeah. The variability between women is just tenfold. And as I've been putting it rather jokingly in podcasts lately, right? Women have this, this monthly cycle of 20, roughly 28 days where their physiology changes. Like every week you're dealing, and certainly every two weeks, you're dealing with kind of a different person. Mm. Men have one long cycle of roughly 60 to 65 years of being an asshole, right? <laughs> Men's testosterone level might fluctuate a little bit in the month, but a yeah. guy comes into the gym on any day of the month. He's the same guy. Over time, when he hits 50 or 60, it goes down, but he's the same dude every single day. Mm. Women may be changing weekly and certainly bi-weekly. There's also the water retention issue, right? We'll talk about the whole body comp thing, right? Even yeah. women that know better go crazy, right? The second, 
the, the second and fourth week tend to be the worst. Uh, so what, body weight tends to be lowest in the first week, about day three or four. Goes up right before ovulation. And this has to do with how the body uh, is controlling sodium handling. High sodium diets make this worse. So like for women, lowering sodium, increasing potassium helps. Tends to go back down in, in the first week of the second half of the cycle. And then any woman will tell you that PMS week is typically the worst. And like I said, women that know all about body composition, know about body fat, know about calories, that know that the scale doesn't matter, they will still lose their ever-loving mind. The average woman goes crazy, right? Yeah. They, they're dieting. They think they're doing everything right. And they get on the scale, and they're like, I have gained five pounds. It's water weight. And yeah. it all gets so, so women, from a practical standpoint, add to the fact that tracking changes in women is different. I mean, men can retain water, too, but it's, there's no pattern to it. For a woman, she starts her diet in week one. Oh, everything's great. Week two, what do you mean I gained three pounds? Week three, cool, my weight's back down. Week four, what do you mean I gained two more pounds? And it's like you have to – women have to compare the same week of the month. So they may not really be able to track results for a month which can be its own set of problems, especially if you're on a schedule, right? If you're dealing with a physique competitor, a weight class athlete, you've got that too. What if you've got a power lifter that's trying to make weight or a rower, boxing, Olympic lifting? If she's on the cusp of a weight class and she's holding three pounds of water because of her period, she's SOL. I mean, what are you supposed to do? And again, men just don't deal with this stuff. So there's a lot of practical issues that come out of that. Um, yeah. This potentially affects what diet might be optimal, right? And, and this is in, in this book, right? Based on having higher insulin sensitivity, lower use of fat, that means in the first half of the cycle, slightly higher carbs, slightly lower fat intake. Yeah. Second half of the cycle, we know that typically when people are insulin resistant, they do a little bit better with lower carbs, do a little bit better with higher dietary fats. Blood sugar can become very uh, wonky so during that second half of the cycle. So, Adding a little bit of fruit frequently helps keep blood sugar stable. Um, there's often a performance issue. And this yeah. is, again, super, super variable, right? The pattern I've typically seen if there's going to be one. First week of the cycle is frequently when women will, will feel best. But again, this, okay, number one, world records have been set in any week of the cycle, right? So there's, there, that alone shows you the variability. Some women feel great, it just it depends on the sport, it depends on the woman. But on average, you will typically see like the first week of the cycle, women tend to feel pretty strong. And frequently it's weird when they start menstruating, when they start bleeding, it's like a switch, man. They go from, I want to die to let's do this thing. Like it's, it's really, <laughs> yeah. I had a trainee that was training morning and afternoon and we've been doing this for a while. So it wasn't a warm up. Her warm up, her, her morning workout was terrible. She couldn't lift for a damn. She, her coordination was off. She started menstruating around one o'clock. And at 4 p.m., she hit personal bests. Wow. It was it was ridiculous. Yeah. Second week, strength may be down a little bit, right? At ovulation, there's a little spike of testosterone, which theoretically might improve a woman's trainability a little bit. So third week of the cycle, typically a little bit stronger. Fourth week of the cycle, in my experience, if there's going to be a bad week, it's that PMS week. Yeah. The same trainee, right? She would go from hitting PRs in week one. Week four, anything over like 60% of maximum on machines, like her coordination went out the window, her phone went out the window, her just, and, and again, this is physiological. I'm not, do not hear, you know, what, what male coaches do is like, just get it together. Like, what's wrong with you? It's like, it's, it's not, 
it's not a deliberate, like it's a physiological response. You're getting neurochemical changes. Serotonin is dropping. Dopamine mm. is dropping. These are not good things. And so I, I finally ended up having to program her training along that, right? I would do week one, heavy. Week two, moderate. Week three, heavier. Week four, deload. And I mean, that fits a typical cycle anyway, but it was a matter of working within her. Per but then you see women, like the energy level PMS, flat line. That may be a PCOS thing. Women just differ. So in this yeah. sense, it, it's great to give these generic patterns, but every woman has to kind of be her own scientist and her coach too. Yeah. It also depends on the sport, right? So if you're if you're training a power lifter and you've got triples at 90% schedule or doubles at 90%, right? If her strength is down, her strength is normal, she can do the workout. If her strength is down 10%, she cannot do that workout. If, 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 her, if her 90% is now 100%, she can't do triples with that. If you're dealing with bodybuilding, a little more flexibility, right? Because let's face it, bodybuilding is, it might as well be muscular endurance training for all practice. Like it, it truly, if you're working between 75 and 85% of max, if your strength's down five or 10%, it may suck, but you can get through the workout. Yep, same, sure. same thing. A lot of the early studies that said that women's like didn't affect performance were using endurance training. Mm. Now, next endurance athlete, I don't know if you've ever had the misfortune of being an endurance athlete. Yeah, if you feel kind of crappy, if you feel like if you feel like dirt, you can always grind the miles, right? If you're if you're working at 140 heart rate, you may not feel good, but you can always get it done. Mm. If you're working at 180 heart rate and you're and you're tired and you're fatigued, you cannot complete the work. Endurance athletes and bodybuilders and physique can usually they, they can always kind of grind it out. And she was doing a combination of Olympic lifting and powerlifting. So and and when coordination goes out the window, good luck doing snatches or cleans. Yeah. yeah. Machine leg press, yeah. no pro. So so her even her her yeah. exercise. But again, that's a very individual thing across women. So there's another aspect that, and, and that's just the base menstrual cycle. We won't even have time to get into it. And, and in the book, I call this hormonal modifiers, right? So you, can, you may have polycystic ovary syndrome. They tend to have a lengthened cycle. Their testosterone may be two to three times normal. They tend to be found in strength power sports because they're drawn to them. They tend to be very successful in those sports. You can, they can be trained much more like men. Same thing with women with a little bit elevated testosterone. Then there's birth control. Birth control is a whole separate, like you want to get complicated. Birth control, you have the pill, the this patch. Is, this is the fantastic. The, the implant, the vaginal ring, and the IUD, right? Those are all the hormonal forms of birth control. Mm -hmm. They may be combined, which means they have estrogen and progesterone. There are some that are progesterone only, uh, the mini pill, uh, Depo-Provera, and Nexclamon, which are the pill, the injection, and the implant, respectively. The estrogen is typically the same, and there are at least eight different synthetic progesterones, ranging from first, second, third, fourth generation, used on different schedules. Some are continuous. Some are 21 days on, seven days off. Yaz is 24-4, like... Men have one hormone. Like, I mean, you can already see just how far off the rails this gets. And yeah. then you get into aging. Women have what happens, perimenopause, menopause, and then some women on menopause have hormone replacement and some don't, right? Mm -hmm. So all of this modifies the basic system. 
Yeah. Now you understand why this book is taking so long because I'm trying to address all of that. <laughs> yeah. And even addressing one part of it is bad, but you know, the menstrual cycle mm. is the base and yeah. everything else kind of comes out of that. But, but birth control is used by an enormous percentage of women. And it's also used by a lot of female athletes, right? So yep. going back to something I said earlier, let's say you are an elite athlete. You are approaching your World Cup. You are approaching the Olympics. And you know that your finals are during your personal worst week of your cycle. Now what? Mm. What do you what? You, you think they care? You think the IOC gives a damn? That you don't when you're at the elite level of sport, you don't get to choose when your competitions fall. Yeah. And this is a real problem for women, right? You've spent mm. your lifetime, you've spent a career, you've spent the last fifty weeks training towards a single peak, and it's scheduled on the week where you can't get out of bed. What are you tough, tough shit? And so a lot of women, a lot of female athletes use birth control to regulate their cycle, yeah. simply so that. And this this requires this is something I don't get it. This requires medical supervision. It's set up so that you can basically sink or not. But this gets into other problems. Some types of birth control can impair trainability mm. because so so in general, going back to the natural cycle, estrogen is thought of as the bad hormone. If anything, it's the good hormone. It blunts mm. hunger, it's promote fat oxidation. It's actually very heavily involved in muscular remodeling and restructuring. I don't know if there's, there's some, some, some research has come out lately that women who do more of their training in the first half of the cycle when estrogen is high actually make better gains than doing it in the second half of it, and that's because estrogen is, has a very positive effect. Yeah, right. Progesterone, which is the, the other female hormone, that's the nasty one. It causes insulin resistance. It actually it it, it, it binds to the testosterone receptor. So not and it also has a so it's it has an anti-androgenic effect. So it causes some of the side effects, but it prevents testosterone from sending a signal. Progesterone causes muscle breakdown. It prevents mm -hmm. muscle recovery. It's a very it stimulates a, 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 one of the things that, that's actually directly stores fat in women's hips and thighs, the isolation-stimulating protein. Like mm -hmm. progesterone is the, the is the, the bad hormone. Well, the the progestins, the synthetic progesterone and birth control, all differ in their effect on different receptors in the body in terms of like the mineral corticoid receptor, which is water base, water balance, the androgen receptor, which is testosterone. They have relatively greater or worse effects. One of the newest, uh, drospirinone, which is as in Yaz uh, or Yasmin. So women love Yasmin because it causes weight loss. Well, it's the progestin is an anti-androgen and an anti-mineral. It causes a little bit of water loss. Women love it because they lose a few pounds and mm. it prevents them from getting zits. Well, guess what? It is an anti-androgen. A female athlete, that will prevent her from adapting her training as well. So women, like so, right there, women are faced with with a real a real compromise. Mm. Birth control may allow them to control their cycle to sequence their competitions with their better personal better better or worse time, but the wrong ones can cause real problems. Yeah, a couple right. things I, I actually left out. There's one other one other hormonal modifier that's really a, a critical one, and that's a loss of the menstrual cycle, right? Amenorrhea. Mm -hmm. Under various conditions, and and the one I'm focusing on here, right there, there's medical conditions that can cause it. Technically, birth control causes the cycle to go away, but that's that's pharmaceutically induced. 
the yeah. type of amenorrhea I'm talking about is either it's, it goes by different names. It's some people call it uh, amenorrhea athletica, which is seen in athletes. Functional hypothalamic amenorrhea (FHA) is probably the most common one, which has to do with the hypothalamus, the big structure in the brain, basically shutting down the menstrual cycle. And when, when, when this happens, and it happens very commonly with dieting in athletes, there's a bunch of different, it, it, they used to think it was body fat, it's not body fat, they thought it was stress, it's kind of stress. Women can actually psychologically stress themselves through the loss of cycle, believe it or not. Mm. Too, much, right. too much physical stress from training, too much hard dieting, really the big issue is it's energy availability, um, mm. and actually Anne who I believe, is she an Australian researcher? No, I'm thinking of, of uh, Louise Burke, Anne Lukes is the researcher that really identified this. And what she showed was that when the body like, basically sees too few calories, called energy availability. Energy availability is the number of calories you're eating minus what you're burning in exercise, right? And that's what's left over for everything else, right? Mm -hmm. That's what's left over to keep your brain functioning, keep your heart functioning, all, all you know, and there's certain things in the body that they're of higher priority than others, right? Your heart stops beating, you die. If your brain stops working, you die. If your hair stops growing, no big deal, right? Extreme diets we've known can actually cause hair to fall out. Well, the menstrual cycle is very much unnecessary. And actually, if you're starving to death, the last thing you want to do is get pregnant, right? Yeah. So to, when you see this low energy availability, when you see too few calories, which can be a function of too little food, too much activity, or let's face it, it's usually both. Um, the body will shut, and when that happens, estrogen drops, uh, hormones go wacky, her immune system is impaired. Most importantly, she can start to lose bone density. And this is critical. This is, you know, the female athlete triad, which has been a big thing for 30 years now. And it, it used to involve uh, eating disorders, bone density loss, and amenorrhea. They've now expanded it to include some other things. But it, amenorrhea causes a lot of health problems in women in the long term, and it happens very often in, in sports that uh, require thinness, running, cycling, of course the physique sports, bodybuilding, fitness, physique, uh, figure, bikini, all those sports which are based around basically starving, I mean, let's face it, they're extreme dieting conditions, menstrual mm -hmm. cycle disruption is extremely common, and Unfortunately, there's this there, there's an unfortunate subculture of banishing the estrogen. A lot of women embrace the loss of cycle because, I mean, at the risk of being gross, it's one less monthly headache. Like, it, it, mm. and I get that, but the, the long-term consequences are not only severe but potentially permanent. So there's there's really a big issue with you know let's and this kind of moves into the practical stuff. There are better and worse ways for women to diet, and by and large, a lot of stuff does not affect men. And that's really where, you know, a, a lot of the diet strategies, a lot of the training things, a lot of things men do, either by intuition or because what works for them, is either not optimal for women or maybe outright detrimental yeah. in the sense that, and of course the other problem is a lot of women get away with this stuff. Some women's systems are less sensitive to being disrupted. They're the ones that make it, right? Sport selects for success. We see the people that succeed. We don't see, you know, the car wreck of the 90% of competitors who just got destroyed physically, emotionally, psychologically. Um, before we get into that, you know, so some other issues that I didn't talk about uh, as far as the physiological differences. Women's bodies, ultimately, their bodies 
they, they also, the big one is they adapt differently to energy, different to, to, to changes in energy balance, right? Women's bodies are less likely, their bodies want to uh, limit fat loss, right? It adapts differently in terms of metabolic rate adaptation, hunger, non-exercise activity, thermogenesis, all those things, their systems adapt more quickly and often more strongly. And the theory is that actually, and this is very true, women were responsible for the survival of the human race, right? In a very real way, once a man has done what he needs to do to reproduce, he can fuck off. I mean, he, he's no longer really, it gets great if he's there, but actually if there's not, but like actually if there's not food available, yeah. it's better if he dies, right? And men are more likely to die during, during a famine than women, because if he dies, that's more food for the child. Mm. A woman's body has to be able to buffer fat loss, dieting, to ensure that, that the developing fetus has enough calories. And like women's hips and thigh fat exist to support pregnancy. Yeah. Right. We know that, you know, that's the other big difference. On top of general body composition differences, with women carrying more fat, they carry it differently. They carry more in the hips and thighs. Men carry it more in the upper body and around the midsection. And this is all hormonally very driven and other, I mean, there's other reasons. And women's bodies are predisposed to store fat in the hips and thighs. They're less likely to mobilize it from there. I wrote an entire book called The Stubborn Fat Solution about that and that alone. But a, a bit of trivia is that when women, during the third trimester of pregnancy, when they're lactating, women's hip and thigh fat becomes easy, easiest to use for fuel. Yeah. Now, for a while, I kicked around the idea I was going to try to mimic lactation to see if I could like get a woman's body like this was years ago and i was just like maybe, maybe i could use i never could make it work but <laughs> the, that those, you know a woman's body is trying to to hold on to that fat and what you see practically so we know that during exercise and this was always an oddity during aerobic activity women's bodies use more more fat for fuel than men more not less right women have more fat in their bloodstream they're storing it, they're restoring it in fat cells more quickly, but they actually use more fat for fuel at low to moderate intensity exercise. Well, that seems very contradictory, and it confused me for, yeah, probably a decade. But there's a couple things going on. One, women are less likely to use fat stored in fat cells and more likely to use the fat stored in their muscle. They use intramuscular triglyceride. They store more, and they use more, and they end up sparing both muscle glycogen and body fat. And again, this is just, this is all a long-term adaptation. They want to keep their body fat, keep muscle glycogen for when it's needed. Now, at higher intensities, this goes away. As women and men approach, you know, lactate threshold, near more maximum stuff, they tend to use pretty much the same amount. Now, men, during low-intensity exercise, use less fat for fuel, which again also seems very contradictory, mm -hmm. but as actually is easy to explain. Women's bodies use more fat for fuel during exercise and less the rest of the day. Men's bodies use more carbs for fuel during exercise and then more fat the rest of the day. Now, as you and I both know, right, we used to focus on the fat burning zone and all that stuff. What's more important in a fat loss standpoint? The hour of cardio or the other 23? And this is what explains the difference, is women's bodies, they are able to shift more quickly, but they shift back much more quickly. Yeah. There's been and it's been a couple studies and like actually in men, right? There's been the whole thing about fasted cardio and non-fasted cardio. And uh, a researcher named Paoli did a paper. And if you if you feed men before exercise, they actually use more glycogen during exercise 
but then they use significantly more fat later in the day. And we know, we know this from other work. Obese people tend to store mu more muscle glycogen, and they use less fat for fuel, right? Their muscles have plenty of fuel available. If you deplete their muscle glycogen, and what is that? What do we, how do we do that? Higher intensity exercise, intervals, proper weight training, moderate their carb intake. If you deplete their muscle glycogen, they burn more fat. It works in lean individuals too. So what do you see women, and, and, what, and here's another thing that's interesting. When men and women wanna lose weight, what do they do? Men go to the weight room and eat protein. Men love protein. And there's even gender differences there. It's very hard frequently to get. Women love carbs and they tend to avoid, they will have carbs and fats during certain parts of the month. They generally don't have a taste for protein and they tend, and if they're into the low fat is good, carbs are good, low fat is good, carbs are good, they're eating it. You've seen that 80% carb diet. Mm. You're like, where's the protein, where's the fat? So you take a woman and what do they do? They go do two hours of low intensity cardio a day. Then lift weights and eat and cut their carbs. So men intuitively are almost kind of doing what women should do. So what are women doing? They're burning a little bit of fat during aerobic activity because women are smaller too. They don't burn as many calories, right? A 130 pound woman doing an hour on a treadmill is burning three fifths of jack squat calories. A 180 pound man is not burning many more, but he is burning more. So there's another big issue. Women burn fewer calories. They have less to work with. They can't create the same, but regardless, so she's burning mainly paltry amounts of fat during exercise, but she's eating all these carbs, so she's burning nothing but carbs the rest of the day. So you get these women that are doing, we've seen them online. Oh, I was on a zero fat diet. All I did was two hours of cardio. And then like, then I found the weight room. And several things happen. They start lifting weights properly, right? And God, you go and watch women lift they're afraid of getting bulky. Again, this isn't, I'm not blaming them. There's so much bad information out there. They see these images of female bodybuilders and go, oh, if I lift more than, you've got, God, there's a celebrity trainer who I will not name. So don't ever <laughs> lift more, you know who it is. Don't ever lift more than three pounds or you'll get bulky. I just want to kill people. <laughs> you get to start doing pro, you know, and you can watch them. Guys are lifting way too much weight. And women will just kind of piss about with five pound dumbbells and they'll do 20 reps and rest five seconds, do 20 more reps, and they're just like, oh, what are you doing? You're killing me. And they'll do this for a few hours and just accomplish nothing. And so they start lifting weights properly. Invariably, this comes with a, a, a whole dietary change. They find protein. Yeah. Suddenly, protein blunts. We know all the great things protein does. It blunts appetite. It, it does everything. If there's two points any woman gets from my book, all 350 pages of it, it's eat enough dietary protein and lift weights properly. If they get nothing, I like these are the two things that I just want to like hammer into people. Yeah. But usually increase the dietary fat and they cut their carbs. Frequently they'll get into interval training and interval training depletes. You cannot fuel interval training on fat. Now there's weight training is weird. There's this one really dumb study that's floating around that looked at fuel use during weight training between women and men. And, and what it found was that women didn't use as much glycogen, didn't use as much stored muscle carbohydrate as men did. But here was the protocol. It was three sets of 50 with a 10 minute rest. This is not how people lift. This is an endurance protocol, right? It's not, it's not a good protocol. And I mean, there's some others. Women tend to be 
they do tend to be a little bit more, they use a little more fat for fuel, like during intervals, especially, you have to make their intervals a little bit longer, they take a little bit longer to get into like heavy glycolysis. They use the same amount of glycogen in their, their fast twitch muscle fibers, but a little less in their, their slow twitch, and that's just because of how they're physiologically built. You can make up for that, a little bit higher repetition range, and here I mean 12 to 15, I don't mean 30. Um, in the weight room, have them, whereas a man might do 30 seconds, have the woman do 45 to 60 with a little bit shorter rest interval. Like this, this has to be compensated for. Mm. But when you do these things, add proper weight training, and there's no better way to reshape a woman's body, moderate the carbs, maybe add a little interval training, add protein, suddenly you deplete her muscle glycogen moderately while still allowing her to train hard. By removing all that excess cardio, you're removing the big stress response, the big cortisol response, the big low energy availability, because a woman can actually interrupt, start to interrupt her, her, hormonal, her hormone levels five days. I kid you not, five days of too much dieting or too wow. much exercise or both, five freaking days is all it takes to see a drop in active thyroid. Five, right. Yeah. What does a woman do? I got to lose weight. 800 calories, two hours on the treadmill. That's day one. Yeah. And you have to ease into all this stuff. Like I talk about a pre, but anyway, so when a woman does that, the magic happens. How many women can you find? How many women have you personally worked with that when you mm -hmm. finally got to listen six months after beating your head against the wall? Yeah. It's a damn magic trick. Like yeah. it's almost, it's like an overnight their bodies change. And as much as I detest this phrase, I put it in the book against my own resistance. As much as I detest this phase, as much as I detest how people use it. In a very real way, that combination of proper diet, resistance training, not all high-intensity intervals, but some of that, and moderating their cardio makes women into a fat-burning machine. And I hate that. <laughs> it's a stupid phrase, but in this case, it's true. Because what it's yeah. doing is it's essentially changing her entire 24-hour fuel utilization pattern. Mm. More to that of a man's. And again, not meant to say that the man's is superior. It's just from a fat loss perspective, this is a superior physiological profile. Um, and just to make it even, right? So we've got all this stuff that's like, you know, this fat endurance stuff for ultra endurance. We got this one, this one study and this fat adapted ultra runner. Okay, ultra running is not running. It is pissing about at about four and a half miles an hour. It is a slow walk. Yeah. Now. Here's the differences, the major difference between women and men in this type of event. Women are more elastic. They don't use as much muscle force at low intensity. They're, they're more built for walking long distances. Mm -hmm. Makes perfect sense logically. They use more fat for fuel. They don't, so they spare muscle glycogen. A male endurance athlete who is fat adapting in the long term is feminizing his physiology. Yeah, there, I said it <laughs> because that's exactly what's happening. Yeah. He's trying to make physiology more like a woman's superior, superior ultra-endurance physiology. Yeah. Well, and by the same token, so, so when I say a woman is masculinizing her physiology, it's not that the man's is superior, just contextually, it will, give, it will provide superior fat loss. So, mm -hmm. that's, so, um, so yeah, so that's, that's really, you know, and there's, there's more practical aspects of it in terms of, you know, how there's other issues. Women make a lot of nutritional choices that can hurt their, uh, they, they tend to cut out red meat. They tend to cut out dairy, and that's one of those weird physique things. And we know dairy calcium is important for fat loss. Iron is critical for thyroid metabolism. Women 
Also, women lose blood every month. Their iron requirements are higher than a man's. If they're not eating red meat and they become anemic, thyroid status may drop. Zinc, which is also red meat in chicken, critical for thyroid status. And they've done studies. They take zinc in iron-deficient women, and when they fix them, their metabolic rate increases significantly. So women are making a lot of nutritional choices along with their training, or they're having these recommended to them that are not only not beneficial, but are actively harming their results. So, so that's kind of that, you know, that's not a short process, but that is basically kind of the, you know, and we know this practically, but it's like this all derived on top of, you know, there's other aspects easing into training. If they haven't been doing it for a while, what I call a pre diet phase, mm -hmm. limiting the hormonal adaptations that gets into refeeds and raising calories to maintenance, taking diet breaks, um, it's interesting. There's starting to be some more research on female physique athletes. A good paper just came out from a researcher named Holmi over in Finland, I believe, that followed a cohort of female physique athletes and just randomly, because it always comes up, most of them were taking birth control. Mm. They were all able to get into contest shape. Because a big, probably the most common question is, will birth control make me gain weight and will it limit my fat loss? And the answer is. Generally, no. There do seem to be exceptions. Like the average effect of most birth control is very small, but there's huge variability. One paper I have, it was insane. The average weight loss, weight weight gain was about two or three pounds, about kilo and a half. The women in one of the one type of birth control lost lost. One woman lost 16 kilos, a 32 pound. But one over this over a year. One yeah. woman gained. 30 kilos in a year she gained how i i just want to know like so when you average it the numbers balance out but mm. as some women gain a ton of weight and i don't know if it's individual variants i think there's a lore of birth control of what women expect to gain weight some birth control do tend to drive women's hunger a little bit more than others so they may end up eating more but like the overall effect tends to be small but the variability i mean my god minus 16 to plus 30 kilos that's crazy that's but massive. this is these are the numbers so anyway so so on average and you know i have Eric's worked, Eric Helms has worked with a lot of female competitors and birth control doesn't seem to have enough. There may be differences once women are already overweight and have insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. You know, birth control, like I said, it's insane. It's so complicated. Um, but by and large, it doesn't seem to have a major effect, but for any individual woman, it might. Um, I know a couple female power lifters that went off birth control and they're like, yeah, their, their, their gains, they, you know, they added 20 or 30 kilos to their total. So it is... But then again, that, and but that's contextual. The average female, she may not care if she doesn't gain the couple pounds of extra muscle. If you're dealing with an elite performer, that's first and last. Like that, yeah. that, that, and 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 I re I will make recommendations in the second book about you know, the least, the least problematic of the birth controls. Um, that if, you know, women may have to be on them for one reason or another. And you know, obviously, pregnancy does tend to interrupt training. That's. You know, my opinion, look, if you're serious, just get your boyfriend or husband, get him snipped. It's make it his response. Um, you know, so these are issues that, you know, I can't recommend what women should. I can give them the information. I'm mainly glad as a man that I don't have to make that choice, mm. especially when you get into menopause and hormone replacement. But anyway, we should move on real quickly if you've got another question. That was extremely comprehensive and quite literally answered every single question I had lined up. Okay, perfect. That was, that was awesome. So thank We're you. Good. Now, the next topic I wanted to talk about was refeeds. So 
we know that refeeds have uh, are beneficial for psychological purposes, but the physiological benefits aren't completely understood by the research as it currently stands. Yeah. I have two questions for you, Lyle. The yes. first one is, are we any closer to understanding the mechanisms behind their efficacy? And two, is a two to four hour or even 24 hour refeed worth it from a physiological standpoint? Or is a 48 to 72 hour refeed more beneficial, even considering it's extending the time of the diet because it's out of the calorie deficit? Right. Um, yeah, these are, so again, just, I, you know, your listeners, just so everybody's on the same page, right? So a refeed as sort of originally conceptualized was a, a period of time anywhere from say five hours up to 48 to 72 of typically increased calorie, increased carbohydrate intake. Now, in some cases, this simply meant coming to maintenance. In other cases, it meant going much, very much above maintenance, right? My ultimate diet too, the first day is a carb load. It's, you know, 12 grams per kilo, um, it, the details are kind of less relevant than, than the question. A refeed, simply think of it as a period where you deliberately kind of go off diet, raise your calories, most of which is coming from carbohydrates for, for a reason I'll, I'll come back to. So when I first wrote my book on, uh, when I wrote A Guide to Flexible Dieting, and, and just because I want to be a little snarky about it, I wrote that book in 2004. Okay, everybody, all these people that in 2017 or 16 or 15 are now on this bandwagon and hashtag flexible dieting and all these people that told me I was an idiot 12 years ago or the people who've outright uh, one person plagiarized my book and claimed to have pioneered flexible dieting. Um, yeah, 2004, I just want to make that. And, and I'm not saying I invented the ideas, right? These ideas have been around prior to that in various forms. Dan Duchesne, had, I think I was, I was one of the ones to write about it in that context and sort of formalize these ideas. And the three that I formalized at the time were a free mm. meal, which is just a single off-diet meal, purely for cycle. Like the whole cheat meal thing does not raise your metabolism. It does not stoke your metabolism. It's a mental break and nothing more. It never was. The refeed, which was anywhere from five days to 20, up to about, at, that, at the time, I think I had it limited to 48 hours of high-carb, high-calories. And this was based on the then new leptin data, right? This is when I got really deep, deep into the leptin thing. There was also the full diet break. The full diet break was a two-week phase where you basically ate at maintenance, the goal being to sort of give yourself a, a psychological break to allow hormones to normalize, to ho hopefully offset some of the metabolic adaptations that we know that occur to dieting. Um, I was not involved with the if it fits your macros thing. That came way later, and I don't claim credit for that. Uh, it did, you know, it came, I think it came out of, you know, my, the work that I had done, but that, that was developed independently of me and I wouldn't claim it that, that the basic, I, I've been saying similar things. The idea of if it fits your macros is, you know, there's this idea that there are diet foods and non-diet foods and clean foods and unclean foods and all that, that really, uh, unhealthy black, white thinking food. And if it fits your macros simply says that so long as it fits your daily macronutrient and calorie intake, any food can in premise be allowed, and I'm being very specific in my language, so that like if you've got 150 calories of 25 grams of carbs and five grams of fat, I think that's about right. Most people would go, ah, you must have your half cup of rice and your tablespoon of peanut butter, and if it fits your macros, would go, you know what, if I wanna have a Pop-Tart, it's fine. 
and it is fine. It doesn't make an ounce worth of difference in premise. There are practical issues that are beyond what I want to get into. That's a whole separate thing. So anyway, the refeed concept. At the time, I was really focused on leptin, right? Leptin broke in 96. We know now that, or 94, I guess, you know, it is the controller of this metabolic axis, right? It is the anti-starvation hormone, leptin dropping controls, uh, thyroid stimulating hormone, it controls cortisol release, it controls luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone, which are involved in men and testosterone and spermatogenesis and women in the egg and the menstrual cycle, which we'll come back to in a second. Leptin has a direct effect on fat oxidation and skeletal muscle. It may have a direct effect on metabolic, right? Like you name it, sympathetic nervous system output. Like leptin is the coordinating hormone. And now researchers used it. They wanted to do something. They wanted it to be an anti-obesity hormone, which it never was. It's an anti-starvation hormone, and that is a subtle difference. In general, raising leptin above normal doesn't do a whole heck of a lot for a bunch of different reasons. If you jack up the levels enormously, people lose a little bit of weight. But that's not what leptin does. If you diet someone and then replace leptin, it reverses the adaptations, right? It's not increasing leptin above normal, it's preventing leptin from dropping. And I still see researchers talking about it the wrong way. Right now, it never really got out of clinical research because researchers want a drug that causes weight loss. They don't want a drug that makes you makes things work better like for lean dieters leptin would be fantastic but it just never it's right now the last time i looked it's about 500 bucks a day so wow. good luck with that and it has to be infected <laughs> a day. and i would only note that if you actually look at what drug using bodybuilders have kind of stumbled upon what they are doing is they're using drugs to fix every part of Everything that goes wrong in the body, right? We know that when you diet, testosterone goes down, cortisol goes up, uh, IGF-1 goes down, T3 goes down, metabolic rate goes down, nervous system goes down, hunger goes up. This is all under control of leptin. Bodybuilders take steroids, cortisol blockers, insulin slash HDH slash IGF-1, Cytomel, Clenbuterol, appetite suppressants. They were fixing, I mean, they, they did it little by little by little. Yeah. One injection would do it all. One leptin injection would fit, but we don't have access to that. There's yeah. been other things. Leptin, amenorrhea that lost a menstrual cycle, directly related to this. This is all mm-hmm. tie it back to that. It, or, or certainly a big part of it is leptin. Leptin is that signal. It's made predominantly in your fat cells. It tells your brain two things, how much fat you're carrying and how much you're eating. Right, so... When you start dieting, within the first five days, leptin drops about 50%. Now, clearly, you haven't lost 50% of your body fat. That would be awesome, but you haven't. Then it goes down much more slowly. So there's this, there's this very acute response over five days, and then there's a delayed response as you lose body fat. And that also works in both directions, and that's where the refeed concept comes in. So we know that, okay, catch calories, leptin drops. Three, four days later, your brain goes whoa, and starts to adapt. And I mentioned the three to four days thing because there is a delay, right? There's all these studies that are like, ah, we had somebody exercise on Monday. They weren't hungrier on Tuesday. Exercise doesn't stimulate hunger. Right. Now remeasure on day four. There's a delay in the system. And you can wank about this evolutionarily where, ah, one day without food 
no big deal. To by day four, your brain's like, okay, there's we better start slow. But there is a delay involved. So originally, I knew that that as little as five hours of eating high carbohydrates will raise leptin. Well, eating 24 will raise it more. And eating 48 will raise it more. And eating for two weeks will raise it even up to a point. The question. That's not debatable. The question then became, and I asked this many years later when I wrote Ultimate Diet 2, is that short increase enough to send to the brain a signal? And the answer, I think, is no. Um, for the same reason, we know that missing a meal, your body doesn't care. This whole thing, right? If you starve for four days, actually you get about a 5% increase in metabolic rate, right? The body does not, the human body does not adjust metabolism on a meal to meal or even a day to day basis. That's, it doesn't rat. There's a little bugger, there's some little critter that if it misses a meal, it'll die. It has no body fat. If it doesn't eat every couple of hours, humans, we got enough fat. Even if you're lean, you got enough fat for weeks. Individual meals don't mean anything. A day doesn't mean anything. Three or four days starts to become an issue. Like and like I said, women who diet very hard, about day five, their bodies will start to adapt. Well, same thing. Men a little bit slower, but close enough. So anyway, by the same token, eating for five hours, I no longer feel has a physiological benefit. Now, it may have other benefits. It can be psychologically beneficial because it lets you work in, deal with carb cravings. It can have a benefit. It can allow you to refill muscle glycogen, um, which is important for maintaining training intensity. Is it going to affect metabolic rate? No. I, I absolutely, I think absolutely not. And realize this is not something that researchers look at by and large. There's, there is some data, but not as much as we would like. So what about 24 hours? Now we're at the one-day mark. Here we get a little bit more complicated. And this is, this is a discussion, again, Eric and I have been exchanging information, you know, based on I've got a lot of the science he's got, and I've got practical stuff too. So will one day, say every six days, be enough to reverse those metabolic adaptations? I'm going to say no. And actually, some of the data on, on women's issues, right, they look at this and they're like, okay, well, one of the researchers, she looked at five days of just hard calorie restriction. And then she gave these women, oh my God, it was, God, I want to say it was like 50 calories per kg. It was just some stupid number wow. of calories, 24 hours. And the hormonal effects, on, they were looking at luteinizing hormone and FSH, which are involved in the menstrual cycle. But presumably the same thing. The effect on any of that was nil. There was zero effect. Right. Even with all the calories. Now another study kind of made this accidental discovery they did three days of fasting, like just no food whatsoever, and they saw the same hormonal changes. Then they brought the women back to maintenance, just as just for giggles. And then they were like, oh, let's remeasure them two days later. Well, lo and behold, two days at maintenance did reverse those adaptations. Luteinizing hormone and FS, luteinizing hormone pulsatility came back to normal. So at least based on some very limited data, this would suggest that for a prolonged dietary period, one day probably isn't enough, but two might be. Now, of course, this has to be, uh, you know, this, this, the, the issue is that, well, this is two days you're not dieting. Well, yes and no. One of the, the way Eric approaches it, and the way I described it in the book, is, well, you've got, let's say you've got your goal weekly deficit. Let's say it's, and I'm just going to pick a number because the math is easier and because my brain's not working right. So let's say you're shooting for 3,500 calories a week, the, the theoretical pound. 
right? Now, if you dieted straight, you would be doing 500 calories a day in premise. Well, let's say you had two days at maintenance. Now, one way to look at it is, oh, we have five diet days. Well, now you're at a 2,500 calorie deficit. Well, this is true. Or you make the deficit days bigger. Make the deficit days 700 calories, and now you've got the big, and, and you've got a bigger deficit on the day. The, the diet days are harder, make no mistake, but now you're getting almost the best of both worlds. You're getting a 3,500 weekly deficit, but you're getting the two days to ameliorate the metabolic changes. Now, beyond a certain point, this becomes absurdly unrealistic, right? If you're targeting, you know, the magic 7,000 calories with two pounds, just to put that into five days of dieting, it becomes like it can be done. You basically end up with my rapid fat loss diet five days. You know, you end up with my UD2 essentially. You end up with five days at 50% of maintenance and then two big yeah. calorie days. But you can adjust it that way. But there's now there's another question that is currently unanswered, but I think there's subjective data. This gets into the whole concept of intermittent caloric restriction, which I don't know how deeply you've looked into that. Right? So the, the standard way of dieting has been diet every day until you crack. And so like, you know, that's how you do diet, do diet studies. Well, they, they started doing intermittent calorie restriction. Now, most of it's done in the obese. There's a little bit in, in leaner people. And what they're doing is essentially cyclical dieting. They're like, well, we're going to give you three to four days or whatever, however the study's done of really hard dieting. Now, they're using what they call a fasting day, which is like 75% deficit. Now, these are obese people. They're giving them one meal a day. These are not lean athletes. This is just to describe it. But then every few days, they go, you get to eat normally. It is, it's not a refeed. It's not a pig out. It's not a, feed, you know, it is a ad lib eat at maintenance. And what they generally find is that people eat about maintenance or maybe 10% above. But what happens is if you look at the weekly deficits, it ends up being as big, if not bigger, than a straight diet. And some but not all data suggests that it may be there may be better adherence. It may spare lean body mass loss a little bit better. Um, it may cause, in one study, cause a little more fat loss. In most, it's about the same. Now, to me, this is just like validation that what I've been saying for damn near 15 years, like I, this is what I've been saying all along. This is the whole flexible dieting, you know, but they're finally applying it. Now, there's not a lot of research in lean individuals and, of course, less so in athletes, but there is interest in this. Athletes run into this situation of having needing to diet but needing to support the training. Women more so than men, because women are smaller – they, to, to create a sufficient deficit, they have to cut their carbs pretty hard and get enough protein. Well, now they can't support their training. So the question then becomes, and this is one Eric and I have gone back and forth and back and forth on. So we know, we can say, I can say very matter-of-factly, a one-day refeed or one day at maintenance done once a week will not reverse. I, I, I will say that. Two days, I think, will. That has to be counteracted either either cutting the deficit or making the diet days harder. Three days, absolutely, and actually there's a classic study where they just make these military guys suffer. It was the, the multi-stressor study where it was like four hours of sleep a day, 800 calories, and they were doing like 16 hours a day of activity with a pack. By the end of it, they were 5% body fat. They had castrate testosterone levels. Cortisol was in the room. T3 was in the toilet. One week of maintenance calories brought them back to normal. One week. Now, does that mean all the metabolic adaptation? No, but their hormones did recover. That's the full diet break. So I, I, I will say very 
Matter of fact, I think one day once a week will not be sufficient, maybe early in the diet. Two days once a week will be sufficient. However, what if, based on the fact that we know there's a delay, we know that it takes three or four days for the body to adapt. What if you did a one day at maintenance every third day? What if you did, or like what we sometimes call the every other day diet approach? What if you were alternating a big deficit, maintenance day, with a big deficit with a maintenance day, with a big deficit with a maintenance day? It's another, it's another type of intermittent fasting, and I don't want to get this confused with like Martin Birkin's lean gains, and IFing yeah. covers a lot of ground, but this Just sort of cycling. alternate, they call it alternate day fasting in the literature, and it's intermittent fasting. Um, will that offset, hush, um, the effect? Eric has found empirically that it does. He, he's finding, you know, what he typically, hang on, one second. Go, 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 go. What he's doing practically is like, and again, he's dealing with like physique competitors. These are men and women looking to get to, you know, the lower limits and, and body fat plays a role here too. At higher body fat percentages, you don't run into this. He'll start with one day at maintenance early on. And this refills muscle glycogen, lets them support training. It has a mild effect as they get a little bit leaner. They'll add a second day. So there might be, you know, Wednesday and Friday. Then you'll add a third day towards the end. And what he's found very empirically and very uh, experientially is that his female athletes and his male athletes too, performance is staying more stable. They're not seeing as many fat loss plateaus. They're not getting that big cortisol water retention that screws people up. Women, more, most importantly... Like realistically, woman going to 10% body fat, it's a matter of when she's gonna. It's, it's a matter of when she's gonna lose her cycle mod F. Like, yeah. it would be it would be great to get them there, but realistically, it's probably the, the the simple is you want it to happen as late as possible and reverse it as quickly as possible. You want to limit the damage. This is the nature of the sport. And he's finding that you know they're they're losing their cycle if it is lost much much later. So I do think that one day might be effective if it's implemented more frequently. And I think like if you look at like, you know, Martin Birkins and, and his lean gains approach, now A, he's using intermittent fasting in a daily right? He starts, breaks the fast at, I think it's between two and 4 p.m. I, I, you know, he's the guy to talk to about that. But he's also varying calories where they're a little bit higher on weight training days, and they're a little bit lower on the diet days. And very similar type of thing where rather than, you know, diet hard for five days and then try to, I mean, I think both work, right? My ultimate diet to Dan Duchesne's original body opus was yeah. five days of dieting, two day carb load. My UD2 was four and a half days of hard dieting and two-ish days at maintenance calories. And it's interesting, you know, in a very real way by accident, that diet's probably more optimized for women than for men. <laughs> Purely by accident, but a lot of, I didn't have a lot of women use it. The ones that did had phenomenal results um, because, and again, I think that was just by luck more than anything. So I think, I think practically there, are other, there's a myriad ways, you know, and if you look at some of the, the early carb cycling approaches that had like, you know, two high calorie days a week in between a low and a moderate day, I think practically they were maybe less structured in a less structured fashion and kind of the same place. I think there's also, you know, if we're focusing mainly on body composition and physique type stuff, 
I think there's also that approach. You can put that on primary training days. I think it might, you know, I offer, a, a, I talk about a bunch of schedules in the women's book, and eventually I will move this out of men's information to bring up weak points during a diet, which is typically very difficult. You know, UE2, which clustered all the high calorie days together, there were people gaining small amounts of muscle because they were able to be in a growth of an anabolic state for a couple of days straight. You might not get that with a single day at maintenance Tuesday, Friday. But from a fat loss perspective, from basically, like I hate to put it in this anthropomorphized thing, but in the sense, you know, preventing your brain from noticing that you're dieting, doing a one-day refeed a little more frequently might have a similar effect. I mean, again, there's no data. You know, this is this is a, a good bit of theory, a lot of anecdote. This is not the type of thing. again the, the ICR stuff in obese individuals does certainly seem to support this to a first approximation but you know when, whenever they get to using this with athletes yeah it'll it'll you know hell will have frozen over um but i do think certainly uh practically and, and anecdotally that's that's being shown to be the case um I, I would love you know i'd love to have more research i'll be honest that i think a lot of my excitement early days i would temper some of that now but yeah. that's just part of you know, i'm 12 years later um, there's some other stuff that uh, is in the women's book, and, and this actually spun out of a rewrite of flexible dieting is where all this started. I've given a lot of thought to some of the flexible dieting stuff, and as, as strong a – as beneficial as I think it can be for a lot of people, I think, unfortunately, the flexible dieting community has become almost as – It's being bastardized. It's being bastardized, and they become almost as much of zealots as the anti-flexible uh, dieting crowd, For sure. especially if it fits your macro people. And I think – and this kind of gets – you know, like I mentioned, if it fits your macros in premise. Typically, the people who are really pushing it hard are, A, coming from many, many years of very rigid dieting. Mm. I certainly did. I spent a decade dieting that way, as you probably did and everybody else did. Yep. It's very different when you're a lean athlete with years of portion control and food control under your belt. All these people are like, oh, you know, I eat intuitively. I don't pay attention. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Because <laughs> if if I decide to go to the buffet and I decide, and I will justify my, my, my gorge no matter how I want to do it, I guarantee you I know how much I'm eating. Yeah. I guarantee you. I may not care. But I guarantee you, I know exactly the six pieces of fudge I just ate. The average, sure. average person is starting out, right? And I, I know there's there's a couple people like, oh, just eat intuitively, just eat to your hunger. Well, if it were that easy, nobody'd be fat. If I ate to my hunger, I would be fat, and so would you. Yeah. And you look at what their intuitive eating is, and it's like half a bowl of cereal and a cup of milk. I'm like, right, that's not. You, you spent 20 years programming yourself subconsciously. So there's that. There. Um, I mean, there's even research showing that lean individuals, that the, the frontal cortex, the part of their brain that makes you aware of what you're doing, turns on sooner when they're eating than the obese. They are aware of what they're eating in a way that the typical obese person. Then you add to that, you may, typical overweight person starting their journey, they may have a dysfunctional reward system. They have 20 plus years of poor eating habits. And again, I pushed, you know, I used to be able to start it as soon as you can. And it's like, well, no, if they're trying to change their eating habits and their taste buds 
and their overall pattern and you tell them day five to go have a cheeseburger, I think the, the risk of kicking them off their plan is very, very high. Yeah. So in that situation, I, you know, which isn't to say not to try it. And, and this is what I wrote. I'm like, give it a shot. Give give a refeed, give eating and maintenance a shot. And if you lose control, A, realize that this is part of the learning process. Figure out what went wrong and fix it going forward. Try it again. And if it doesn't work, wait. Don't be a damn fool about it. Right? Clearly people have lost weight effectively without any of this stuff. Yeah. At the physique one in the general public. Do I think there are better ways to do it? Yeah, but it can take time. In that vein, what a lot of who's the other issue, right? Who are typically pushing if it fits your macros hard? Bigger males. Bigger males have a lot of calories to work with. A hundred twenty pound female on fourteen hundred calories. That's not fun. She doesn't get to eat a pop tart. Yeah. Because when you are on, you know, quote unquote poverty calories, um, you don't you don't get that option because you will starve to death. And I think that's a place where um, do you need to get going? No, no, no. Oh, good. Um, I think that's where pra- where I think practically it, it's often they they just may not have, they may have to wait for the day of maintenance to have the room to be yeah. able to. So it's a great idea and premise, but it does. And some people just have trigger foods. Some people. They can try it, and again, if you try it, it doesn't work, you just do something else. There's other strategies that work. So, anyway, so yes, to sum up, one day, maybe if it's done frequently enough, two days for sure, um, three days absolutely, but you end up having to adjust the deficit to keep the fat loss on goal. Yeah, awesome. That was fantastic, well. And one of the final questions I wanted to ask you was on intermittent fasting. You recently mm-hmm. posted a review in a in a private Facebook group. Uh, that I had yeah. a look at, and it investigated uh, intermittent fasting's effect on ectopic and visceral fat stores, adipocytes size, insulin resistance, and metabolic flexibility. Yes. Besides adherence issues with intermittent fasting, and obviously there being a large personal preference for it, are there yeah. any drawbacks uh, for females specifically on fasting? Oh, give me one, give me one second. My dog drives me crazy, and I'll address that. That's actually, it's a really good question. And the answer is maybe. Um, There's an interesting criticism of intermittent fasting on the web that I read and found kind of very uh, unconvincing, where basically it was someone on a paleo forum bunch of women were reporting that intermittent fasting was causing menstrual cycle dysfunction and things of that nature. Um, there was a, actually a very good critical analysis of it on a website who I forget offhand. Was it actually, there is some evidence that, that full-blown ketogenic diets in and of themselves may cause menstrual cycle dysfunction. So I have to wonder if it was IFing or paleo. This is a place there's not a lot of data other than um, the, the stuff on Ramadan athletes. Uh, yeah which is the religious fast that Muslim athletes follow. What little has been done on female athletes, there seems to be a percentage of women that it may affect. And even this with the whole menstrual cycle thing, like the theory is that uh, women are the gatherers and they were more likely to gather food and eat more frequently. Like that's kind of the the theory. And I don't maybe um, that... Becomes one of those arguments back and forth. The data seems to suggest that there may be a percentage of women that are sensitive to it. 
even with the menstrual cycle stuff, the researchers talk about some women systems are more robust than others, and nobody knows why. They're just like it. Some women like everything else. Some some guys, just it is what it is. Um, I find for a lot of women, I think again when they're on low calories, skipping breakfast has huge benefit. Right, the whole thing about if you're on fourteen hundred calories and they want you to eat, you're trying to eat five meals a day. That's not a meal. That's two bites of food. Skipping breakfast and clustering food later in the day can have enormous benefits. Can that possibly have some negatives physiologically? It might, although my gut, like I honestly, I think it's a matter of extremes. I think also you see a lot of the intermittent fasting. It's like, ah, I'm doing one big meal. I think that's very different. The athletic intermittent fasting approaches yeah. where very which honestly I want to give Martin Burke you know, credit. You know, I've had our differences, but he, he he's getting just disgusted in the research. They're like the, the athletic interpretation where you're breaking your fast at two to four, eating a pre-workout, a post-workout, and eating yeah. over eight hours, different than eating a single meal. I will say, and this is as general intermittent fasting, but I think certainly very more common to women, is a lot of women are coming from eating disorder backgrounds, especially in the community. Honestly, and this will sound really sick, eating disordered women are the best dieters. I mean, they truly are. Like, it's, it's, you have to kind of be like starving to death. You have to like being hungry. But there is a, there is a danger with both cyclical dieting of any sort and intermittent fasting. It can start to turn into a binge purge pattern. Yeah. And I think that is actually a very real concern. Is and, and even the general public, I've done this. It's just like, yep, gonna IF and decide it's like, oh, I'm hungry. Cool, going to the buffet. I'm gonna go eat eight thousand calories. Like, that's, that's a problem for everyone, but I think for women that have a pre-existing or a past history of that, it can yeah. very, very rapidly put them back into that path. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of considerations, and I do actually address you know potential criticisms. So it's one of those things. Try it, and if it's causing problems, then standard dieting clearly works. Um, and even there, simply a lower meal frequency. You know, six meals a day just doesn't work when you're on low calories. It's 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 four. Even four meals a day at you know nine one five nine, you don't necessarily have to skip breakfast. You know, have some have protein and veggies, cluster your carbs, you know, what, and I, I address this in great detail. It doesn't have to be IFing to get those benefits. So, but yeah, I think that's, I think that's an issue that, that does need to really be considered. Um, certainly. Awesome. Awesome. And my final question for today, Lyle, is yeah. what are the current gaps in the research pertaining to sports nutrition, fat loss and hypertrophy? And what needs to be studied, studied further to bridge those gaps? It's uh, a really good question. I have to think about that. You know, I actually don't know. I don't know at this point. You know, we've gotten such well. You know, I think one that that the whole dietary fat issue. If nothing else, I wish researchers would stop talking in percentages, but that's just a personal thing. Like they don't, they just don't really look at that sort of thing. Like I, I do think there's a gap that's increasing of looking at these issues in, for fat loss in leaner individuals, and and it's it, finally there is an increase in numbers. I'm seeing increasing papers looking at 
physique competitors and bodybuilders. And, and I, there's finally, uh, I think, apparently Eric Helms and Alan did a presentation on this. And it seems to have stimulated some real interest in this. And it's just, you know, and, and, and you have to think about this, that, that researchers, obesity researchers, who cares about a 15% body fat athlete? They're not the problem. They're the more interesting population to me and probably to you, but from an obesity standpoint, who, who gives a damn? Who gives a damn? If, if an athlete's 15%, he's, he's doing just fine. Um, so I, I think that both from the fat loss and the muscle gain, you know, uh, there's a researcher named Garth who's done several good studies using elite athletes looking at, you know, different rates of fat loss. They looked at a structured versus an unstructured muscle gain thing. I think looking at some of those issues, you know, it would be nice to see some work on, you know, some of these cyclical dieting approaches. Uh, there's a good paper in Journal of Strength and Conditioning Researchers that research that basically said there's not a lot of research, but this has a lot of potential for athletes. You know, if you've got a weight class athlete, how do we support training and keep them within their weight class? Well, maybe one day of intermittent fasting a week, maybe these ICR approach, I mean, stuff that I think we've been doing uh, empirically, it would nice, it would, it, there's always the question, you know, you read Alan Aragon's research review, let's start looking at some of the stuff sequenced with exercise. It's great to look at training studies, it's great to look at diet studies. How do we sequence these things better? You know, Garth has done good work on this. Let's look at some ICR patterns. You know, let's look at maybe what are optimal calorie intakes for muscle growth. You know, the Garth study looked at that kind of indirectly. The group that got a very structured nutritional plan gained decent muscle without a lot of fat. The group that just ate, they just got fat um, and ate about the same amount of muscle. Like we 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 lack some some numbers. People ask me all the time. You know, what's the optimal surplus? It's not as big as you want it to be. I can, I can tell you that for sure. You know, if you look at the, the rates of muscle gain, it's a lot lower than you think. Um, so, yeah, I, I suppose, you know, it's nice to see generally more research in lean athletes getting lean, how to optimize. You know, Eric Helms has that great review on protein to spare muscle loss. I think, I think more and more data is finally coming. There's always the problem of elite athletes don't want to give up potential training and nutrition. And controlling this stuff is really, really, really hard. So you get, you know, you get collegiate athletes, which are fine, but don't give us really an indication in what might be optimal. So I think, I just think it would be nice to see more. And, and I am seeing it. I think, and this gets back to something you mentioned in the introduction that we can wrap up. I think the biggest change since I, you know, I came into the field in the 90s and I, I was one of the first ones really pushing a lot of research. I was a fresh exercise physiology grad. I knew everything about everything. And um, it's good in that I've seen a lot more evidence-based stuff. It's bad in that we're going to get to the point that if you don't have a PhD, you don't get to have an opinion. I think yeah. I've created a monster here, but it is what it is. But the consequence is that there's a lot of really good people now that are in the academic world that have a personal background in actual real-world training. Some of the study designs I see, you look at these workout protocols and you're just like, what drugs were you on when you – I saw one just a second ago, and they were like, yeah, yeah metal throws and hang cleans for a growth study. Like, hell, what, what are you on? You know, we've got yeah. – and this is meant to be inclusive. We've got guys like Eric Helms, Brad Schoenfeld, Alan Aragon, Brett Contreras, um, Lane Norton. Like I said, I'm not trying to be – I'm going to forget people, but who have – who, who have the background in both because they're personally lifters and bodybuilders and Brad himself, God, I don't know when he works, I don't know when he sleeps. The number of studies he's cranked out that, while not 
perfect because you can't do a perfect study design or at least representative of what people are actually doing in the real world. This is answering questions that these dumbass theoretical model papers ever did. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, sure. it's good to see, you're seeing this increase overlap. You know, we you had um, Dr. Holmey, or the, who did this, you know, followed 27 Finnish physique competitors, and they've got the background to know what to study and what to examine. I helped a guy named Alec Ritson set up looking at metabolic rate for male bodybuilders diving down in your show. And, and I think we're going to start, as this becomes a legitimate area of study, it will become a more legitimate area of study. I think we're going to start seeing seeing better designs on this. So so I think that's an area that there's a lot of room to grow, and I'm already seeing some improvement in. So that's good. Definitely. There are, there are a lot of people out there who are quite esoteric, and bridging that gap is something we definitely need more of. Lyle McDonald, thank you very yeah. much for your time today. Hey, that was absolutely brilliant. Absolutely. And we'll speak to you next time. Very good. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Lyle.